This episode of Backtalk is sponsored by The Smitten Kitten, a progressive feminist sex toy store for everyone. Selling body-friendly sex toys since 2003, The Smitten Kitten is your trustworthy source for high-quality, non-toxic toys and equipment for the bedroom and beyond. Their staff of friendly sex nerds can answer all your questions. Visit The Smitten Kitten in Minneapolis or on the web at smittenkittenonline.com. Hello and welcome to Back Talk, the show where two feminist people talk about this week in pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch Media, and I'm here with the esteemed Amy Lamb. Hi, Amy. Hello. <laughs> Amy, uh, let's just start off the show with your really big news. My super duper big news. You have such big news. <laughs> well, um, I am going to be leaving Bitch Headquarters. Um, to pursue an MFA in creative writing and fiction. And uh, I'll still be doing the back talk, the back talk, I'll still be doing back talk, the <laughs> podcast remotely um, from the hot deep south uh, in Oxford, Mississippi. I'm going to the University of Mississippi. Um, I'm really excited. It like my, I think that the tone of my voice betrays how excited I am because I'm so tired. <laughs> you've, been I'm like, so tired. <laughs> you've been like scrambling to leave and like yeah. tie up everything here. Right. And like, when are you driving to Mississippi? Like in maybe a couple days. And I, and I am not lying when I say I haven't packed a single thing, <laughs> nothing. Like I haven't packed. I, I don't, I think I've just been, I've been distracting myself of being busy with like a million things. So last night I finally realized like, wow, I really should pack. So like next week, you're driving to Mississippi to get an MFA and you haven't packed anything. Yeah. Like, no, in two days. I'm probably leaving in two days. Oh my God. Like, I'm just proud I got my oil changed in my car. So that's. I'm proud you made it to this recording yeah. session to record this episode. Yeah, I almost ran out of gas getting here. So I have to go get gas after. So, um, yeah, it's been a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of writing you're going to be working on? <sighs> that's a good question. Um, I, I do like literary fiction. So, uh, Often the themes that I touch on have a lot to do with like my own personal life, um, like being children of refugees, uh, immigrant experience, uh, like being Chinese or Vietnamese or like the the sort of like how to navigate that growing up in between so many different cultures. Um, and then there's also a part of my writing that's just like uh very i didn't notice this until i read like read back some of my short stories but i write a lot about sex (laughs) 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 or like sexy things so there's that part too i i and i don't know why it's like so inexplicably woven into my writing but it's just something i'm really Um, maybe because it's woven into all of our lives yeah i guess (laughs) (laughs) you're not the only person uh thinking and writing about sex right But it seems to be like a thing that occur- like a, a plot thing that occurs in so much of my writing. I'm like, oh, wow, what's going on here? Anyway, but that's not like the central theme of my writing. But uh, and also a big part of me going to do this program is that like I'm working on finding out like what I'm really going to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this, you know, this job has been amazing, but like it's also very exhausting and emotionally and otherwise. So I haven't really had time to focus on my own writing. And I think this is going to be a really great opportunity for me. I am really sad that you're leaving Portland. But honestly, I'm really excited about anything that you could do in your life that re- that involves you writing more. So I think this is a really positive thing because you're going to be writing more and then you'll be publishing more. And I would love to read more of your writing. And I think the world needs more of your writing. So um 
I'm not too sad. If you were like leaving to go into PR or if you were leaving um, to go do some like boring corporate job, I would be really sad. If and I was would leaving, feel a great loss, but uh, instead I feel like hopeful and buoyant, and I'm excited to call you up in Mississippi every other week and talk to you about <laughs> pop culture. I think it'll be I think it'll be a really interesting experience to see pop culture through the lens of living in the South yeah. and living in Oxford, Mississippi, and thinking a lot about writing uh, in an MFA program. So I think it'll make the show even better, and I am excited to see where you go. Yeah. Me too. Not not just living in the South, but living as an Asian person in the South. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, is. I guess I'm like I'm I'm worried for you, um, but also I think it'll be. Um, I th- yeah, I think it'll be manageable. I I actually did a lot of work before like s- agreeing and s- saying yes and signing my whatever uh, document saying yes I will come to school. But um, a big part of it was like I had to make sure that I would have support. And know that like I would have a community there to, um, so that I wouldn't feel isolated. I think that's a big part uh, to protect myself and my own mental health. So I did some due diligence in that way, but I still have to find a counselor out there that will mesh with me. So that's something. So if anybody uh, lives in Oxford, Mississippi, <laughs> and knows of a good counselor, <laughs> hook me up. <laughs> I'm looking. It takes my insurance. <laughs> um, well, Amy, thanks for all you do. Thank you. Um, we just started the show talking about our favorite piece of pop culture this week. And I'm just going to go right into mine still, um, which is that I went to a really awesome music festival this weekend called Pickathon, which, first of all, I hate music festivals. <laughs> if anybody like ever invited me to a music festival, I'd be like, mm, I don't like crowds. I don't like lines. I don't like paying for things. I don't like being forced to hang out with large groups of strangers. And I don't like big shows. I like intimate small shows. But Pickathon is actually a really great music festival. It's in the woods. And so anytime the people are too much, you can just like wander off into the woods and be by yourself. And I had the opportunity there to interview a bunch of my favorite, really inspiring musicians, um, including Alinda Segarra, who fronts the band Hooray for the Riff Raff. Um, if you don't know Hooray for the Riff Raff, they're like a very politically focused roots and blues band based out of New Orleans. And Alinda is amazing. And... I almost like cried during our interview. We started talking about, she's 29, I'm 29. And we started talking about how as we get older, we're actually getting more angry. And that when I was in my, when I was 20, I thought that as I got older, I would get more apathetic or more stagnant and more settled in my life. And actually the opposite's been true, where as I've gotten older, I've gotten more passionate and more upset and more engaged and less apathetic than I was when I was 20. And so uh, we talked about that dynamic, and I just wanted to play a little clip from the interview. Here's Elinda Segarra from Hooray for the Riff Raff. So we're like at this age where we're like, we're going to have to take care of this like baby planet pretty soon, you know? And we're in so, such a important time period. You're thinking about the future generation, and you're thinking about the elders. And it's a really emotional time, and it's made me be like, I'm more upset than ever, you know? I actually have had a lot of moments where I was like, I was not wrong when I was 14. Right. When I was a fucking 14-year-old and I was like, this is not going well. I just want all of the adults to know this is going to fucking crumble. And they're like, you don't know. You're just like some angry kid. And now I'm just like, it was all a lie. It was true. Like, the dead Kennedys were right, you know? That conversation just like really connected with me. And 
Um, but you can read the whole interview with her that I did up at bitchmedia.org. We just published it today, Thursday. So if you want to read more from Melinda Segura, check it out, bitchmedia.org. So my favorite pop culture thingy is uh, this, this podcast that both of our friends do. It's called Racist Sandwich. <laughs> I, I did an interview with the hosts, um, Soleil Ho and Zahir Jamahamid. Soleil is actually a contributor to Bitch. Yeah, she wrote the piece um, Craving the Other, if you've read that. It's about cultural appropriation and Vietnamese food. Yeah, and she's so smart and sharp. And Zahir is also. Um, they started this podcast called Racist Sandwich to talk about like the intersection of food culture and race, gender, class. Um, it's it's so good, uh, and I'm just so glad to like be able to know them and um, have the ha- the opportunity to talk to them about their work. So there is an interview up with them on bitchmedia.org. And also the latest episode of Racist Sandwich is the one I'm on. So I guess this is self-promotioning, Noli. <laughs> so people haven't heard enough of your voice. Go listen to Racist Sandwich, the newest episode starring Amy Lam. Yeah, episode eight, um, which I remembered because eight's a good luck number in Chinese culture. So I was like, yes, I got episode eight. And it's, it's the smallest superstitious stuff. But it was a, it was like a, a somewhat difficult interview to do because not only were we talking about food culture and how it intersects with our lives and our identities, but also um, what our lives as writers, because in that room, all three of us were writers. And we're just talking about like how storytelling also intersects with um, our own identities and how it influences or um, pulls away from our identity. So it was a really intense interview. At one point, I kind of cried a little bit and I, and I was very unapologetic about it. <laughs> that's, that's the theme of this week is is unapologetically crying during interviews. <laughs> so check it out. It's a really amazing podcast. Okay, so first up on the show, we're going to talk about the Olympics and specifically media coverage of the Olympics. Um, the Olympics are an interesting time, even for somebody like me who's not that interested in sports, except for rhythmic gymnastics, which is obviously the best. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> besides that, I don't, I'm not like that into watching sports most of the time. Uh, but the Olympics are a really interesting time because it becomes this like media spectacle and because it's a time when um, we all of a sudden see these like top female athletes on screen and everyone's talking about them. It feels like the two weeks every two years where women's sports actually gets the time and attention it deserves in, in our media and in our culture. And I was reading this study about um, like coverage, TV coverage of women's sports and Sports Center on ESPN. What percentage of their time do you think they devote to women's sports in like a normal year? This is 2014. I I probably say ten percent. It's two percent. Shit. Yeah. So, so these researchers like watched Sports Center and marked you know ev- every so minute what shameful. they were talking about, right? And only two percent of their time was devoted to women's sports. And so, on the one hand, watching the Olympics, it's like, oh my god, like look at these amazing athletes. On the other hand, I'm like, wait, where have these women been? Like, why aren't they on TV all the time? Why don't we like talk about Simone Mile? Like, why don't we talk about the best gymnast in the world, Simone Biles, like every month of the year rather than just during the Olympics. Yeah. And it's so there's there's that piece of it. It's like we don't hear about um, these summer Olympians every, until every four years and then like the winter Olympians every other four years as well. And there's also the piece that like 
the Olympics often is like shrouded in a lot of uh, controversy when like the buildup leading to it, like it, happening in Rio and happening in Beijing, happening in Sochi and Russia. It's like there's so much um, displacement and human rights violations while they're setting up for it. So there's like that piece of like, wow, I'm watching this huge international sporting event and I'm being a, like nationalistic rooting for my own country people. Like, like in a way that feels like, pure or uh like needed because you're, you're watching somebody as as amazing as simone biles doing things that i would never have imagined the human body could do um in such an excellent way but then also having to keep in mind like um what forces uh, like had to go into play to build the stadium in which she is like doing that amazing floor routine right totally yeah. like i tried to for me i try to separate in my mind like i think you can both really celebrate the amazing human achievement and like the ability of somebody like Simone Biles to like do what seems impossible for humans to do and to really like recognize that and appreciate it and be blown away by that while at the same time saying so many things about the Olympics are really screwed up and that rooting for Simone Biles doesn't mean you have to like be rooting for USA USA all the time you can appreciate the athletes and still uh, recognize that there's a really screwed up level of nationalism around that and that the Olympics itself is basically as we talked about on the last propaganda episode on sports and capitalism, is a juggernaut, is a capitalistic juggernaut that makes a lot of money for uh, some people who already have money, who are like land developers who got sweet deals to build the golf courses, to build the stadiums, to build the Olympic Village, and they're going to keep making money off of it, whereas the regular people in Rio, and especially the poor people in Rio who are displaced for the Olympics, are screwed over by it. So I feel really conflicted about it, but at the, you know, but both those things are true. Like Simone Biles is an amazing athlete and is worth being recognized and appreciated and pl- applauded at every possible moment. And the Olympics is really screwed up in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's completely possible to, ha- to have feel those both those things at the same time. And then to add to that, like on a completely different level, it's like sometimes when I'm watching the gym, especially the gymnasts, I think. Um, like Simone Biles and Lori Hernandez, who is so uh, amazingly athletic, but also so like emotive, like with her face, like you can like feel her love for the sport. Um, and I'm and in my and I'm not like tracking um, all of the summer Olympians, but I don't think I've seen a Latina gymnast on the American team before. So to see such a young, amazing athlete doing her thing and doing it so well and with such like like great energy is also super fun to watch one one thing i've been thinking about a lot while watching the olympics is the performance of femininity that's required of the female athletes especially with the gymnasts if you watch them on the sidelines they have to be like they're like standing up straight and they're smiling all the time and during the routines they'll pull off some amazing flip that you know is exhausting and then they'll like spring up with a beautiful smile and that really plays in the, the like stylistic components really plays into their score and plays into how they're seen by the judges where if they're not smiling if they don't seem like perky and happy um people really come down hard on them there's also the piece about um how whether or not they're being good americans uh like so for the american women's olympic gymnast gymnastic team the entire crew was like on the podium when they were getting their gold medals and they were playing the national anthem as the flags went up and um gabby douglas didn't put her hand on her chest you know and it's not like the pledge of allegiance there's really no need to do that but 
um, the media attacked her for it, saying that like she's not patriotic, she's being disrespectful for not placing her hand on her chest. Um, and then she had to, you know, make a post on her Instagram saying like, "Hey, no, I meant no disrespect. Like, I'm really happy to represent this country, et cetera, et cetera." But it's like this notion that she's already worked so hard, and like now we're critiquing the way she's standing on a podium. Yeah, I think it's like it's both. I mean, so at at this at the same time that women are, it's really great to see these female athletes on screen and being really high profile, and really public. This is also a time where their bodies are policed and their behavior is uh, scrutinized in a way, in a really intensive way. And that seems like the flip side to me, like, oh, yeah, we, we put women on TV and we get to celebrate their achievements. But that opens the floodgates to also like intense public and media scrutiny of their every behavior, the way their bodies look, the way they act, whether they put their hand on their heart, whether they smile. And so it's it's really a double-edged thing, I think. It's kind of the nasty flip side of being high profile is, well, now you're in the media spotlight and everyone's going to talk about every single thing that you do. You know what really bugs me when I'm watching the, the women uh, do their Olympics, their gymnastic thing, <laughs> is after every routine, they like get off the stage and then they go and meet their teammates and they have to hug each and every one of them. <laughs> like after every routine. And I'm just like, you guys, it's it's all good. Like we know you like each other and you respect each other. Like this is this is nonsense. Like you're literally hugging each other dozens of times during each day of competition. Like just relax. Does does that feel fakey to you? Like they're being forced to be like, yes, I'm nice. Don't worry, guys, I'm still nice. When I watch the men compete and the men are like the American men when they're competing, they're like not not on the level as American women, right? So that that's besides the point. But um, they just kind of like nonchalantly give each other like very um, like quick fist bumps to, mm. to be like, yeah, good job, whatever. Um, so there's just like a very like a casual like acknowledgement of like you did a good job. But I think when the women are done, they have to display this thing. It's like we're in it together. Let's give each other these hugs that like we've given each other like a, a hundred thousand times. And it just seems to me like such a waste of time. And now it's getting to the point where it's like a a pet peeve of mine. I'm like, stop <laughs> hugging each other. Well, that kind of, well, that kind of ties. I mean, I'm not sure what they're thinking is on that, but to me, that feels like that ties into that performance. Yes, of course. Thing of being like, don't worry, I'm still nice. I'm still likable. Yes. I may be like the strongest human in this room physically, but I'm still likable. I'm still nice, and sort of having to put on that display for the cameras and for the judges who are gonna find anything to nitpick about them. And and speaking of nitpicking, um, <laughs> uh, it's so interesting, like the media coverage of these female athletes and how they talk about them. Um, and there has been some pieces written about the different headlines or descriptors for some of the athletes mm-hmm. here. So one of the ones that have gotten a lot of um, play is uh, in the Chicago Tribune. There's a woman, her name is Corey Cogdell Unrain. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but the headline was, because uh, she won a bronze in trap shooting. So she medaled, which is a really big deal. Um, but the headline for her in the Chicago Tribune was, Wife of Bears Lineman Wins Bronze Medal Today in Rio Olympics. That sounds like such an Onion headline. Like, Wife of Football Player Won a Medal. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, That's Wait, so, so what's her name? What's her story? Who's she? And that like plays into that problem of women only being defined by their the partners, relationship their relationships. Yeah. yeah, the relationship to men. And and uh, yeah, exactly. In this headline, we don't know what sport she plays. We don't know her name. Like we don't know anything about her. And we actually actually don't even know who her husband is because it says just Bears Lineman. Um, and there's also the um, I actually watched this live. It was a swim meet for the 400 meter medley. And this woman, she's Hungarian. Her name is Katinka Hozu. And she won. And immediately after she won, um, the commentator, 
like says and the camera pans to her coach who's her husband and the guy says this, this is the guy that's responsible for this win and i and i sat there and i was with my partner and i was like excuse me <laughs> i think she's responsible for her win like it made me wrong but i think she was the one in the fucking water like like working so hard like swimming like i've never seen swimming been swam before so can we please not look at her like super yoked out husband on the sidelines cheering for her? i literally don't care and another thing in the swimming pool is that Katie Ledecky, who's a young swimmer, I think she's 19, and she's, like, just winning so many medals, and she's being called the female Michael Phelps, which and, is ridiculous. Right, like, and that's another, that's that same problem of, like, tr- defining women yeah. in relationship to men. Like, no, she's Katie Ledecky. Like, she's not the female Michael Phelps. She's Katie Ledecky. Well, now what I think is funny is that I think some other media outlets are doing this thing now where they're flipping it, and I saw a headline about Phelps, and it said, like, the male Katie Ledecky did this and I was like oh okay see that cracks me up <laughs> maybe we need more of that to balance yeah. out this like this is like low-key misogyny because it's like we can't recognize these women without recognizing them um, in relation to men and how, why do we do this like we don't do this for male athletes ever you know we're never saying like um you know LeBron James, the husband to Savannah James, you know, wins another NBA championship. It doesn't work that way. Um, and I and this excuse that like, oh, it's because they're, you know, the male counterpart in, in these in these equations are more famous or more well known. Like, well, these women are also very famous and well known in their own right because they've made this fucking amazing achievement. And also they would be more famous and more well known if they were actually put on TV by ESPN during times that are not the Olympics. Yeah. So I, it's it's like it's like really exciting and fun to watch, and then like when like g- like gaffes like that happen, and you just want to like throw straight at your TV, and you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't because I still want to watch the rest of the Olympics. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but it is super frustrating. Next on the show, we're talking about the TV show everyone is currently obsessed with, Stranger Things. And we're, we should say this is going to be a spoiler-free conversation. So if you haven't finished the series yet, it's a Netflix original series. Um, it's streaming on Netflix right now. I personally binge-watched the whole thing in like three days and like destroyed my sleep schedule and also terrified myself and like couldn't go outside in the dark. <laughs> so Sarah. I've seen the whole thing. But um, we're not going to talk about spoilers or like or like crucial plot details. This is more about why the show is resonating with so many people and um, why I'm excited about it. Sound good? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I was a little skeptical of the show when I first heard about it because people were like, oh, it's like a nostalgic throwback to the 80s about like four boys adventuring. It's like the Goonies. And I was like, oh, like there's so many nostalgia-driven shows right now. You know, it feels like everything is a reboot or a rehash or like a throwback. And I'm like, can we just get something original? But this show feels different because I think it's it actually works and while it takes the sort of the stylings of um you know sh- movies from the 80s that were like fun ad- kid focused adventure stories it actually is like an original plot that's driven by original characters and isn't just built on like haha look it's a callback and also I think what it gets right is so this is a show it's about these uh, kids and they sort of get involved in this mystery that's supernatural government conspiracy blah 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 um and what it gets right, I think, is what I love about those movies from the 80s that are really kid-focused is that the kids are inhabit their own whole world and they really drive the story and you're kind of adventuring along with them. And it doesn't it doesn't dumb them down. It doesn't um, 
you know, diminish their capacity. It's like, oh, wow. Like, I loved watching those mo- those movies as a kid. Like, like the Goonies, um, like Escape to Witch Mountain, like other stories that were focused on kids. Um, because I felt like, yeah, that could be me. I could go do that. And so it's just fun to see another kid-centric story like this. Also, obviously, Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are your feelings about Winona Ryder in this? I think this is a really interesting role, and I think she does a really good job with it. So basic premise of the show is that Winona Ryder's son has gone missing. Uh, He might be dead. He might have been abducted by aliens. You're not really sure. And so she's playing, she's a single mom. She's raising him and an older son. And what I really like about her performance here is that in this role, she's really forceful and she's very demanding and she's like assertive and she's totally going a little bit insane because her son has disappeared. And I feel like a lot of times representations of moms on screen, no matter what happens to them, they still have to be likable. They still have to be nice. You still have to be like um, uh, thinking that that you could be friends with them. And in this role, Winona Ryder's character, like she is not friendly. She's like, this is this is an emergency. I need, I demand all of this attention. Like I I am demanding resources, and uh, the most important thing is getting my son back and finding him. And anybody who's standing in my way is 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 not acceptable. And so I think that's really a powerful performance where she's like, yeah, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to get my son back. <laughs> <laughs> I had a different feeling about her performance. Um, I, I don't know if this is has more to do with like her acting as it does her character because there's I, 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 I've watched the entire series. And I think that what happens for me is that it's like a very plot driven show. It's not really a character driven show to an extent. There are some characters in it that um, like are really important to the show but there's no real character development so i think that for the vast majority of characters um besides 11 um who's played by who i think is the the star of the show um mel melly bobby brown i think that's her name she does an amazing job and she has an amazing performance and um the thing about for me with winona, winona Ryder is that i i get that she's frantic because she lost her son and she needs to go get him but it's like it's very one note throughout the whole film i mean throughout the whole series um and and towards the end it's it gets to the point where i i see what you're saying that like she's not trying to make friends but it's to the point it's like yeah i get it you're you need to get your son but like i think it's it's not so much the character but it's her performance of the character and um and there's also this part of me because i haven't seen her in in very much work since like um when she was doing a ton of work like back in the Beetlejuice days because I just recently watched Beetlejuice so there's this leap of me being like wow I still think of her as that character Mm. um yeah I think that for me that representation of her being super frantic all the time feels realistic to me like you know if I don't have kids but I feel like if I had a kid and I lost them I would be one note and that note would be uh demanding and frantic you know like (laughs) that would be just obsessive and that her obsession here is is all consuming and she's willing to do anything and try anything, even if it seems totally outlandish and crazy. And um, that's because the most important thing for her is communicating with her son and, and getting him back. I just think I wasn't interacting. <laughs> that's, my, that's my critique. Sorry, Miss Winona. Um, I, I liked her. I just like, I guess I like seeing, I especially like there's like one scene where um, she goes into a, the hardware store that she works at and demands a bunch of stuff on credit and that scene to me is really powerful where she's like look this is what I need and I'm taking it so give it to me and that's just not something you see very often on screen 
And uh, that that really resonated with me. I also really like in the show that I was worried that she was going to become defined by her relationships to men, like we were just talking about. Um, that at some point, because she's a single mom, oftentimes when there's a TV show where there's a single mom, the storyline winds up becoming like, who is she going to get with? Who's going to be the dad to her kids? Who is she going to, is she going to have a romantic ending with some guy? And I was worried that this was going to go that way where, you know, it's about this mom, but really it's about who is she going to get with? And that's not the direction the show takes. And I really appreciate that where it doesn't turn into like, like, like BT dubs, it's a rom-com and she really remains her own character who's defined by, well, being a mom, but really defined by her desires and her needs and not trying to, um, to have to have a relationship with some guy. Because it's such a plot driven show, like, and it's fun to watch and it's super entertaining and I liked it you know I was like glued to it too but there's just like I just have a ceiling now where like I can enjoy a show but I'm not gonna going to like proselytize about it Mm. because there are also like there are also like outstanding issues that I just can't get over now like my my lens is like too fogged up with (laughs) problematic shit well I was watching the whole series and I was keeping an eye out for whether it passes the Bechdel test or not so do two are the two female characters who have names in the show who talk about something other than men and I don't think it passes the no, Bechdel test. No. Um, there are some conversations between uh, Nancy, who's uh, the, the this girl character in the show, and her friend, who's actually an interesting character. But all they talk about is like, are we going to go to this party to see this guy? Um, all of their conversations revolve around this guy that she has a crush on. Um, and I might have missed something, but I think throughout the whole series, there's while there's some good female characters... It's very centered. It's centered on the male characters. It's centered on their adventure, on their exploration of themselves, on their exploration of their identity, on them grappling with reality. So while I think Winona Ryder's character is strong and really cool to see on screen, um, it's really worth noting that it's it's a it's a boy centric story. Oh, and, super boy centric. And yeah. that, you know, how would the show be different if it was for girls exploring the woods and exploring their town? Uh, is that the kind of show we'd ever see? And there's this other part of me where it's like there are uh, two prominent black characters in the show. Um, one young black kid who's like uh, part of the boy crew. And then uh, one of the... He's like a sheriff deputy yeah, person. Yeah. Who's... I mean, but they're like... They're smaller roles. They're not the huge roles. Yeah. And, you know, like I was thinking back to a couple of weekends ago, I uh, was at a friend's house and we were... We had like a backyard showing and we watched um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I've never seen it before. So this film was made in 1977. And it's like... It's a kooky film about um, literally aliens coming down and communicating with humans. And after the after the viewing, a friend of mine who kind of I think he kind of like jibes me like, oh, like there weren't enough like characters of color in that movie. huh? And I was like, no, there wasn't. But like I'm able to like suspend my disbelief because it's a film like I'm not going to sit there and rage watch this. But, you know, but then I I hear like um, like justifications for it. Like, well, you know, it's the seventies and uh, it's in the small town, Montana, et cetera, et cetera. But my, my critique that I always go to is like, this is still a work of fiction. There's no reason that this town couldn't have, or this film couldn't have been casted, but like at least majority people of color, because in this film and in this series, like we are in alternate universes, aliens, monsters, like complete nether um, creatures come through and they contact with us. So this notion that like we can't have more representation for people of color in these series and in these films because they're like they're um, period specific to that area and region does not work for me because it's Mm -hmm. a work of fiction. We don't have to abide by these rules. These rules are set up to justify like very white casting. 
So that's what happened with me when I watched Stranger Things. I was like super into the show. Oh, we can have like supernatural monsters creeping around. That's believable. But if we'd made Nancy like a Latina character. Right. That's totally not believable. <laughs> right. Like, like it's it's unbelievable. We have more than two, like, families of color in this whole entire ass white town. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, even if it's a very white, small town, yeah. there are probably people of color living there. And it's, and this show is about, like, just regular people. Like, yeah. there's no reason to make them all white. Like, yeah. Regular people. Like, hey, people of color, regular people too. So, like, I can enjoy this show. Like, I enjoyed the series. It was fun to watch. I loved getting scared. The monsters were super neat. Like, this notion. But there were, like, lots of holes in the plot and story. Like, I don't even get into that part. <laughs> but at the end of the day, like, I'm done watching it. I was just like, they didn't do the female characters good. Or, like, they didn't do them justice. And this notion that, like, we're in this fictional small town in, in the middle of wherever, um, and there can't be more than two families of color. That just fucks me up because I, I'm just tired. I'm, I think I'm just tired of watching these really great shows that are fun to watch that everybody's like talking about. Um, but then like this notion of like, well, you know, there was like a young black kid in the crew of boys. It's like, well, why couldn't the crew have been three black boys and like one one white boy? Well, I think I mean, it's one of those things where you can say like, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun show to watch. It's really engaging. It's yeah. obsessive. There's, there's really, really good things about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it still repeats some of the things that we see across media that are problems. Yeah. And I and you know what? I think that like I get so ups- I get upset about this. It's because like uh, to an extent, like if I don't get upset about this show, like which is it's so popular, then like how, you know, I, I feel like I need to to hold so many things accountable. And it's a big show. People poured money into it and it's going it, to it got lit for a second season. So. Um, you know, these are the enduring things that like inform us about what, uh, who we are, uh, you know, as, as a, uh, in terms of like what stories we uphold and what stories we centered. And even in this like fictional small town, it's like, still, it's like, um, the, the story of like this white family losing their white son. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying it's good yeah, it's and good. it could be better. Yeah. Like and, how here's much what more, I, and here's what I would like to see. Right. Like how much more dynamic and interesting would that story have been if it was like a story of an immigrant family that just arrives in this very white town or something and their son went missing. Like, holy fuck. Like, can I write that? Can Netflix uh, call me? Okay. I'm, <laughs> I think you have something to work on for your MFA, <laughs> which is writing that story because that sounds pretty sweet. So it's like an immigrant family arrives in a small yeah. town and then supernatural things start yeah. happening. And then it's like. We have like amazing monsters in our cultures, by yeah. the way. BT dubs. Like, our monsters are so awesome. Okay, please. I know you maybe had other plans for your MFA, <laughs> but this is your new plan. <laughs> An immigrant-centric story inspired by Stranger Things. Yes. <laughs> so it's the end of the show. At the end of the show, we share one thing we read, one thing we watched, and one thing we heard this week. I'm just going to start out with one thing I read, which I've been listening to the Spanish-language podcast called Radio Ambulante, I'm really trying to beef up my Spanish skills. So listening to podcasts in Spanish has been a pretty cool way to do that. So Radio Ambulante, um, it's kind of like uh, it's a Spanish language show uh, hosted by a journalist named Daniel Alarcón, who teaches journalism at at Columbia and uh, has done amazing journalism work in the past. And so I've been listening to this show and I've become kind of obsessed with it. And I'm like, I need to read everything that Daniel Alarcón has ever written. And so it turns out he wrote what became the first graphic novel published in Peru, like the first literary graphic novel published in Peru. And it's called City of Clowns. And um, I read that story and it's really interesting. And um, it's a beautiful graphic novel. I think it came out last year by Daniel Alarcón. So if you're interested in stories about, uh, it's, it's basically a story about punk 
clowns in Peru <laughs> and also dysfunctional families and loneliness. Um, check it out. City of Clowns by Daniel Alarcon and also his podcast, Radio Ambulante. That sounds that sounds so amazing. Punk clowns. Oh, my God. Where's the Netflix show about that? Peruvian punk clowns, please. <laughs> Um, the thing that I watch that I'm really excited and into right now is The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> what is the deal with this show? Why do people like it so much? Are they I, just like making muffins or what's... <laughs> I think, okay, as a big fan of reality TV competition shows, I think that the reason why this show is so popular is because of the contestants. Um, and also it's on OPB, so it's very... Or on PBS, sorry. So it's very accessible. Like, you don't have to have HBO or Netflix to watch it. Um... And they bake all of these, I mean, I think from an American-centric view, they bake all of these types of pastries and sweets that we've never seen before because it's not part of, like, our tradition and baked goods. Um, but like crumpets or? I, I literally can't remember the names of these things. But, like, like they go back to, like, Vic, they make Victorian-era, like, one of the last ones I saw, they make like they made a Victorian-era meat pie. And they had to, like, break out these old Victorian-era tins to do, to do all this. It's, like, it's so random, but I think it's because... First of all, I love the show because they have very inclusive casting for their contestants. Um, and it kind of like really flips your uh, the, like, the notion of like who's a baker, who's a home baker. Because this is like for home bakers, not professional bakers. And like it, there's a lot of men on the show. Um, there's a lot of people of color on the show. Um, I, I feel like in, in every season there's a good number of people of color. Like in this third season that I'm watching on PBS... Um, there's two people who I really love, Tamal and Nadia. And Nadia is a Muslim woman, and um, she, you know, she wears her hijab on the show, which I think is just like the representation of seeing somebody with a hijab on a show like this is like so. It means a lot without saying a lot, without having to say a lot. And she also, um, I, I think she is me, like on the show <laughs> because she always looks really worried and like super <laughs> intense. But it's just a fun show, and also I think it's because it's a very British the sensibility of it is so there's not a lot of like they, they don't cast people who are like I'm the best baker I'm here to win this I'm not here to make friends that kind of character there's none of that I I think almost every contestants on the show is like oh my god am I doing this right oh I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing like, it's very British in that way so I think it's like fun to watch because you're so sympathetic with every single contestant so it's a self-effacing inclusive pastry reality show <laughs> and it's so good and like I don't I don't want to eat probably three quarters of stuff they make because it looks really weird and... yeah Victorian meat pie <laughs> sounds like my worst nightmare yeah it, it did not look good to me as I don't eat beef pork or chicken so I was just like sitting there like oh that looks kind of gross yeah. my partner was like it looks delicious so who knows um but I, it's, it's a fun show to watch and it's just like it's just fun to see uh different foods from different cultures and to also see when some of the like um immigrant folks on the show they add like their own twists on Ooh, cool. classic you know um english pastries uh you know like adding different spices and stuff and i'm just like yeah like do do cool. your thing yeah it's just a fun lighthearted show to watch okay so to close out the show uh we have one thing i heard which is um at Pickathon over the weekend, the music festival, I interviewed another musician, Ezra Furman, who I'm not sure if uh, people are very familiar with his work, but he's an amazing, like, genderqueer performance artist, is what his shows feel like to me, with, like, very pop, fun sensibilities. So he's both very sincere, very thoughtful. Talking to him was like interviewing a poet, where every word he really thought about and he really thinks deeply about gender. He thinks deeply about performance. He thinks deeply about identity. And then his songs are really um, are really fun and really 
um, uh, moving, I think, if you actually listen to the lyrics and think about what they mean. Um, and so this is a song uh, that I want to play for you called My Body Was Made. And when he performs on stage, uh, he dresses very femme. He wears like a dress and pearls. And this song, if you actually listen to the lyrics, it's about um, saying, you know what, your body was made this way. And that's great. And embrace it. And don't fight it. Your body was made this way. So play it out with Ezra Furman. Bye, Amy. Goodbye forever. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This episode of Backtalk is sponsored by The Smitten Kitten, a progressive feminist sex toy store for everyone. Selling body-friendly sex toys since 2003, The Smitten Kitten is your trustworthy source for high-quality, non-toxic toys and equipment for the bedroom and beyond. Their staff of friendly sex nerds can answer all your questions. Visit The Smitten Kitten in Minneapolis or on the web at smittenkittenonline.com. Backtalk is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Then become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. So become a Pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinator. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. <laughs>